Uh, good morning. Welcome to worship at Pleasant Street Christian Reformed Church, everyone. It's good to see you today. And for those of you joining us online, welcome to you as well. We know that you are there. Even though we cannot see you, we know that you're with us, very much a part of this worship life together too. And so welcome, whether you're joining us online at simultaneously or after the fact or here in person. Uh, it's Sunday. It's the start of a new year. And here at church, as well as in the rest of our lives, there's all kinds of new rhythms happening. People are remembering how to juggle the schedules and the calendars, and it takes like a whole month to figure that stuff out. Uh, and here at Pleasant Street, too, we are adopting and remembering some new rhythms as well. And so I want to highlight two of those things that um, are restarting for the life of our church. Over the last few weeks, we've been doing ministry spotlights, highlighting a couple of the new things events and opportunities to learn and grow together at our church. And so I want to invite two of my friends up, both uh, John and Leanne, who are going to tell us about two ministries that are restarting soon. Uh, John, who will be leading an adult study for our midweek. And they need a mic. Here you go. Thanks, John. All right. Good. Good morning. I kind of imagine myself in front of a podium. I never talk in front of people. Just kidding. So um, this year at Midweek, I'd like to teach a class called Jesus the Rabbi, Exploring the Life and Teachings of Jesus. It'll be the highlights of a class that I teach at school. In this class, I really dive into the first century Jewish life. We want to put ourselves in the situation, the time where Jesus was, first century. What would it have been like to be there? <clears throat> What was it like to live at the time of Jesus? We'll wonder, what's it like to follow a rabbi, to be a disciple? We'll look at the teaching methods of the rabbis, parables, and the schooling system of the first century Jewish children. We'll look at the land, the lessons we can learn from the deserts and the rivers and the seas. And other topics will include the Jewish religious groups and the Jewish feasts and festival days. Hebrew literature, how it's different from what we have today. Daily life, how their life was so different than ours today. Maybe we'll even get a few pictures in there from when Sandy and I went to Israel. We'll see. It'll be a chance to really dive into Scripture in a new way, to sort of look at Scripture through a new window, so to speak. And I would love to share this information with you. That's been the culmination of a lot of study over the years for me. I hope to see you at midweek, starting September 21. We'll start at 6.30. Dinner, of course, is before. And bonus, there is no tuition for this course. There'll be no quizzes, no tests, no homework, no projects. Wouldn't that be nice, right? So I hope you will come and learn with me. I think it'll be a lot of fun. You'll learn a lot. Thanks. Thanks, John. Thank you very much. Yeah, come and join us for that. Starting at our next midweek on Wednesday, September 21. Leanne. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Leanne Lukianic, and I, uh, along with Judy Metzger and Ginny Corbin, will be leading our women's Bible study on Monday mornings. You see, it takes three of us to do what Minnie has done by herself over these many years, and so very well. We will be starting on September 26th at 9.30 in the morning, and we will be resuming our study of Ephesians that we began last spring. 
and we should be in that uh, for the next five or so weeks, and we are beginning with lesson eight. Judy and my contact information is in the bulletin this morning. Also, you can find us in Fellowship Hall. If you have questions or if you need a book, we will have extra books. So I hope you will join us on September 26th for blessings and fellowship and study and, of course, that second cup of coffee. So we'll see you then. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne. I love that. Um, the reminder of the rhythms that we have of gathering, catching up on life, sharing food, fellowshipping together, and also studying scripture. And today, as we remember those rhythms, we're also stepping into a, another rhythm that happens every Sunday. It's the rhythm of being gathered into the presence of God, of remembering what it is like to sing his beautiful name together, of being reminded of his story and having that imprinted a little more deeply on us and learning to respond to each other and to the world around us. And so friends, would you rise in body and spirit as we practice that rhythm now? Well, good morning. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 145. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. Some works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Let's sing with God's forever worthiness.
awestruck wonder at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is power. You have called us to unity, to live in unity, but often we have isolated ourselves from others. Uh, 
We believe you have called us to live together as one body. We believe you ask us to look, listen, and learn from others. God, forgive us for the times we have ridiculed and attacked those with different viewpoints. We believe you ask us to accept and seek to understand. God, forgive us, open our hearts, and make us one. Let's turn to God in a time of silent confession. The Lord is faithful in all his words and gracious in all his deeds. The Lord upholds all who are fallen and raises up those who are bowing down. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. We come to church, uh, if for nothing else, those beautiful words that uh, if you're here weekly, we get to hear over and over again, you are forgiven. And those words actually become the foundation for a whole new way of living in the world. And we get a chance to practice that new way of living in response of hearing God's declaration of forgiveness to us through Jesus. We respond by opening our hands and giving generously for the work of his church. So the deacons are coming around now with baskets to collect offerings. We have two offerings today. One is both for the ministries of our congregation, the work of Pleasant Street, and then they'll be coming around again for a second offering um, to support one of our ministries, which is uh, providing assistance for Christian education. If you'd like to know more about their work, please contact one of the deacons to find out more about the ways that we are serving our community.
treasure to you that you have entrusted in us. We offer up the skills and time that you have generously given to us. We offer up ourselves in service and in praise. Receive these gifts of, by your grace. Multiply and use them through the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish Christ's work of love in the world. Amen. Friends, the peace of Christ is with you. Let's sing that final verse again. If you were to just rise and by your spirit. Verse 3. Would all the kids from Kid Street please come forward? People of God, what is our prayer for these kids? peace to love and serve Jesus. And if anybody sees Caleb after church, please wish him a happy birthday. Church is a place full of rhythms, of calling and responding, of giving and receiving. We have a chance to practice that rhythm now of having heard of God's grace and His love for us, turning upwards to God in trust and faith and hope to bring Him the things that we see and share among us, places in our lives and in our world that need 
his grace, and his love. Friends, would you join me in a congregational prayer? Lord God, and the Father of the household of faith, we thank you for calling us into the company of those who trust in Christ and want to obey his will. You have made us strangers no longer, but pilgrims together on the way to your kingdom. We were lost and without family. You have adopted us into yours. And this morning we sit among infants peeking over mom's shoulder and the simple waves of small kids and the fellowship and friendship of those with wisdom and years to share with us. We ask, O oh God, that you would guide us closer to you and to one another in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and that you would strengthen us together in mission and service to your world. As part of that mission and together with Christians among all nations, we lift our voices together in prayer to you today. We think especially of the Anglican Communion, the Church of England, and all our brothers and sisters in the United Kingdom who are mourning the loss of Queen Elizabeth. Thank you for Queen Elizabeth. Thank you for her life and witness and faith in you. We ask that you would be with King Charles as he takes up the throne. We ask that you would enliven his faith and empower him to do justice, and to seek the values of your kingdom for all in the land that he oversees. Lord, hear our prayers and those of our sisters and brothers. We give you prayers of thanks today, God, for Chris and Brittany's wedding last weekend, and we give you praise also for Angie and Zach's engagement. We ask that you would be with both couples as they begin the journey of trying to figure out how to make a life together. We pray for Larry and Ruth Spalink, who work amongst your people in Japan. We pray that you would strengthen them for their work for the gospel, protect them from illness, grow the church, enliven their faith, and especially comfort Ruth's family after the passing of her sister's husband. Lord, thank you for the chance this past week that our leadership had to meet with leaders from Emmaus City in Worcester. Thank you for Mike and for Aaron and for calling them to that work. We pray that you would continue to guide them each step as they work toward the mission of equipping and growing disciples of Jesus Christ throughout Worcester. Spirit, we ask that you would aid them in this work financially spiritually, and in numbers of new folks that will join their mission and who will bless all your church in Worcester, that all of it might be built up. In our congregation, we thank you for the joy of being able to restart some midweek programming as well. Thank you for GEMS and for our leaders, for cadets and for our leaders, for middle school students and for our leaders. We ask that you would add to them faith in the gospel and that through conversations together that all of them would be built up in knowing you better.
Lord, we pray too for those who are recovering from surgery or sickness in the life of our congregation. We ask that you would heal them and enliven their faith in the good news of Jesus. We pray for Debbie, Debbie V, who is healing from surgery procedures, for Audrey doing the same. We pray for Carol L, who is back in the hospital. We ask that you would help her to recover from this ulcer. We pray for Nellie D, healing from pancreatitis and recovering from dehydration at St. Camilla's. We pray for Dexter and Cindy H as they journey through the land of cancer and for Karen and Steve as they continue their journey. We pray also looking around at the world around us, seeing those purple flags in the lawn of some of the congregations that our brothers and sisters attend. We are mindful this month of those who have suffered drug overdose and dependence. We ask that you would increase addiction recovery opportunities, that you would provide places where people can heal and detox, that you would build up our social environment so that it becomes harder for folks to fall into dependency and overdose, and that you would be with those who have committed to the hard work to love addicts. Enliven their faith, that you do not let go of us even as we struggle to find ways to love family within boundaries and to know in wisdom what love means. And we pray for John and Amanda and Megan after the loss of Heidi last week. We ask that you would draw near to them even as their family returns to their own lives. Please give them safe travel. Thank you for Bridget and Jim and the staff at Buma who have helped so immensely to comfort them in this time. Almighty God, you have built your church on the foundation of Jesus Christ who is the cornerstone. We ask that you would join us together in unity under the teaching of Jesus Christ through Paul as we turn our attention to 1 Corinthians that we might become a holy temple, a royal priesthood, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our scripture reading um, today first comes from the book of Acts, chapter 18, starting in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. 
One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. And then 1 Corinthians, starting with verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am so thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you are baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. New season, new series. We are turning our attention from Proverbs in the Old Testament to the New Testament to a letter written to a group of Christians in the city of Corinth. We know it as 1 Corinthians. We will be reading 1 Corinthians together this fall. Uh, and uh, as I was thinking about this, there was a story that came to mind. I think it was Philip Jenkins, who is the scholar of global Christianity, who said that there was a church in Africa who, uh, Africa, right, that's not specific at all. But anyway, that's where it was. And uh, on a Sunday, they were reading the Bible, and they were reading a letter from Paul, and they read the words, the grace of the Lord be with you all. And the congregation gathered there on that day with one voice said, thank you, Paul. Which I love. Because what they understood is that when we read this letter, we are reading something that was written to people a long, long time ago, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are also reading something that has been addressed to us. And so in the presence of that Spirit, friends, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we turn our attention to Paul's words to the Corinthians, and as we think about what it might mean for us, we ask that you would pour out your spirit, which we have sensed among us already, enlivening our faith, reminding us of your story of good news, helping us to believe that it could also be good news for us. And so we ask, O oh God, that you would continue that work now by softening our hearts, 
stilling our minds and opening our ears. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank God for Chloe. And you're wondering, who is Chloe? (laughs) And I mean this woman whom Paul references in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. Today, I thank God for her. She's the leader of a household in this faraway ancient place called Corinth. We don't know that much about her. But today, I give thanks for her. Corinth was an important city in the ancient world with an interesting history. We'll get into that later. But what you need to know for today is that Corinth was made up of several small house churches scattered throughout the city. They didn't have big sanctuaries back then. And so when the church gathered, they did so in homes, 30, maybe 50 people in a location, depends on how big the house was. It seems that Chloe's house was one of the locations where they had church. Thank God for Chloe. Today, here in our church, I thank God for Chloe and her people because she sent word to Paul. You see, without Chloe and her people, it's likely that Paul might not have heard about what was going on in Corinth. He was far away at that point. He was in Ephesus. He was planting another church. He was very busy. It is natural when someone is busy for you to say, well, I don't want to bother them. doesn't need reporting. But Chloe sends word to Paul through some of her people, and they go to Ephesus, and they try to track Paul down. Have you seen this guy named Paul makes tents? Have you seen him? Yeah, he's over there. They tell Paul the news. There's trouble in the family called church in Corinth. Thank the Lord for Chloe and her people, but I imagine that when the letter came, not everyone did. Because Paul is not writing to praise the church for their faithfulness. He is writing to address a number of very difficult and divisive issues at work in Corinth. And Chloe is the one who has brought these things to light. I thank God for Chloe, but I imagine not everyone did. Because it can be hard to tell the truth about what's going on. It can be hard to admit that there is trouble when there is trouble in the family. It is hard to ask for help, which is exactly what Chloe's people have done. If it were up to the Corinthians, they probably would have wished that we hadn't ever received this letter. This this is not their best moment. The church in Corinth, if you look at those first couple of verses, which we passed over, but if you look at them, 
it seems that the church in Corinth was full to the brim of every kind of spiritual gift that you could have. They were packed to the rafters with talented people. In fact, Paul says right there in verse 5 that Corinth is a church that has been enriched by God in every way. Every way, Paul? Every way. And yet, and yet, gifted as they are, capable as they are, I have heard from Chloe's people, Paul writes, that there are quarrels among you. This, this is not the church's best moment. And I love the way that Paul is both specific and vague. I have heard from Chloe's people. Was it Chloe? He doesn't say it was Chloe. It was her people. Well, which people was it? He doesn't say. This is not the church's best moment. It is, it is though, a snapshot, a glimpse, a moment frozen in time for all of church history into a family conflict, which reminded me of one that I had heard about not so long ago. In Brooklyn, there is a neighborhood called Rockaway. And in Rockaway, there once lived a gifted and talented family, a family with very prominent parents and their 11 children. Dad spoke five languages, was always the top of his class, played seven instruments, worked in the State Department under the Kennedy administration. Mom was a powerful lawyer, somehow in addition to also having 11 children. Together, they formed this great and powerful presence in the lives of their children. Their children worshipped them, but mom and dad were busy. And with 11 kids, attention was hard to come by. Inevitably, as everybody grew up, the siblings started to treat things like a competition. One child memorized all of the presidents of the United States in order so as to be paraded by his dad in front of fancy friends at dinner parties, the other siblings, not to be outdone, began to do the same and more so. Well, as you can imagine, those childhood fractures never quite healed. And as adults, instead they grew into fault lines. Today, the 11, the 11 siblings break down into two factions along one simple line. The Rockaways and the non-Rockaways. They are divided along the line of those who stayed and those who left. How divided are they, you ask? Well, when their mother passed away, two different funeral directors showed up at the same house the Rockaway crew and the non-Rockaway crew had both made different arrangements at different churches with different priests and different cemeteries for mom. You see, what happened is when they lost their parents, it left a vacuum. And so with no way to decide winners and losers or favorites, they filled the vacuum with the only thing that was left, stuff. 
Unfortunately, all that their parents had said in their will about the stuff was that everyone should get an equal share divided among them. Well, that wasn't going to happen because both the Rockaways and the non-Rockaways had become deeply suspicious of each other's motives. And so Joe, who was sibling number eight of 11, was given the task of creating an elaborate system of lottery rules in order to divide some 200 items, items such as a pen that John F. Kennedy used to sign a bill, uh, a turkey platter that supposedly came from a Kennedy garage sale, uh, their mother's silver, a photo of the kids in the Oval Office meeting Lyndon Johnson, and mom's engagement ring. And so after Joe set up this elaborate set of rules complete with a third-party mediator, including an officially randomized order of who goes first, the siblings began to carve it up. And so the lottery happened and the kids got mostly what they wanted, including their distance from each other. Family feuds, even church family feuds, can be the worst kinds of conflict. And a story like that doesn't happen overnight. A story like that is years, maybe decades in the making. But if you walk it back with the eyes of Paul, you would see that it begins to happen when the people in the family lose sight of what the family is for. Because then the relationships begin to fall out of joint until the siblings are nothing but rivals. Which turns out to be exactly something like what Paul is worried about this morning as he writes to the Corinthians. Paul, the spiritual father of these Christians, the one who Acts tells us planted this church and spent a year and a half with them, he writes, I've heard about what is going on from Chloe's people. I've heard about the quarrels. We don't know what the root cause of the conflict in Corinth was, but we do know that by the time Paul heard about it from Chloe's people, it was bad enough that he had to write a letter to address it. It could not wait for his return in person. The discrepancies had grown so serious that it had put the point of church out of focus. And so with a hard rhetorical question, he asks, has Christ been divided? But a more precise translation would be, has Christ been divided up and parceled out? Have you turned the tapestry of the church into something to portion out, like Jesus' clothes at the foot of the cross? You can tell by the way that Paul asked the question that he is not expecting anyone to disagree. No, no one would say no because the answer is yes. Yes. Christ has been divided up and parceled out. You can tell because the church in Corinth, whatever the root of the problem, at this point they have turned leaders into something of a, of a commodity, a possession to be haggled over, a, a rallying point to gather around. You can tell that the answer is yes, Christ has been torn and parceled out because somehow the church has lost sight of what baptism means. 
the Corinthians had, had started to rank themselves according to who had done their baptism and their spiritual training. Paul says, I thank God that I, that I only baptized a few of you. Uh, well, of course, there was also Stephanus, right? But I don't think there was anyone else. And I'm glad because otherwise more of you might be thinking you were baptized into my name instead of Christ's. What these two things have in common is that the Corinthians had begun to fixate on the person doing the baptizing and not the action itself. So having lost focus on the water and the message that we are bestowed with it, it seems almost inevitable that, that then they would begin to lose focus on one another as well. No longer siblings in a family, they begin to see each other as competitors in a territory battle. And the territories are aligned with Apollos and Cephas, which is Peter, Paul, and even Christ. Strange, isn't it? That Christ should be listed as a favorite leader among them? Isn't that the goal? That we would all say, I belong to Christ But in this instance, it's merely a weapon in a battle. For to say that I belong to Christ as opposed to Paul or Apollos is to make Christ the head of a faction. It's a way to claim spiritual superiority and thus a way of describing yourself as better than your siblings. Isn't it ironic the church father Chrysostom observed that baptism, the sacrament of our oneness in Christ, would somehow become the source of division. But then again, that's what happens when the focus of church gets lost and the siblings begin to become rivals. My friends, this might be someone else's mail, but thank the Lord for Chloe and her people because it is certainly addressed to us in this 21st century world too. Friends, I thank God for Chloe because this is only 20 years after Jesus and already we can see things are a mess. The conflicts that we see in Corinth and that we are going to be looking at together are the same kinds of conflicts and divisions that the church has continued to face and that we face today. And so thank God for Chloe, for she helps us to remember that we are in good company. Every church has divisions. Every church is made up of different people who come from different stories. And sometimes when the weather gets rough like a flag in the wind, the seams begin to pull and the fabric frays, and it can start to be torn apart. Church conflicts are as varied as the people who make up their stories, and yet, at a certain level, they're always the same. They are the result of a failure to keep in focus the water of our baptism and the message that it proclaims, that we were bought at a price, and that we belong to Christ, and so to each other. There are lots of 
different things that can bring Christ out of focus. It could be loss, it could be change, it could be financial, it could be interpersonal, it could be persecution or comfort. But no matter the reason, when the church begins to lose focus, personal preferences become absolute and ministries of the church can turn into territory disputes and Christ is torn and parceled out. It can happen to any church, my friends, because every church faces conflict. But you know, I wonder if when we hear Paul say, let there be no divisions among you or, or be united, sometimes what we hear is don't have differences of opinion, don't have preferences, but, but that is not what Paul means when he says be united in thought and mind. Paul more than anyone else knew how much difference there was in any one church. He, after all, a Pharisee, was sent by God to Gentiles. And Paul planted this church. He knew that it was a congregation from the beginning of considerable difference. Jews and Greeks together, lower class and wealthy benefactors, people from the local community who'd lived there a long time and those who'd moved there from somewhere else. In fact, as we'll see, some who are part of this church may not even have yet been believers because they were married to folks who did not yet believe. And so Paul understood that the church is made of a tapestry of different fabrics all sewn together. And so the church is not a unity of culture or language or ethnicity. It is a diversity of culture and language and ethnicity. The church is a unity in diversity. And that unity must come from somewhere else. In fact, it can only come from one thing, which is the gospel. The news that Paul gave his life to preaching. The news that seemed so foolish at first to both Jews and Greeks for different reasons, but in fact became to them the power and wisdom of God worth making significant and drastic changes for in their lives. The gospel, Paul shows us, is what makes the church, and the gospel must be the one and only thing that sustains it. It is the first thing, you could say. It's the first thing that he said to them, and it's the first thing as in the most important priority. The gospel is a salve that can also heal division wounds. And it's simply this, it's what Paul says in verse 6, the testimony of Christ the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who came for you, who lived for you, who died for you, who rose for you, and who now intercedes on your behalf in heaven and who will come again in glory for you. This is the story that Paul preached, which they heard, which brought them together. It is the story also into which they were baptized. And it's the story that Paul wants them to make first. Friends, any attempt to define ourselves by doctrinal purity or social activity or ethical consistency will promote schism and it will turn our faith into a parody of the faith that we confess. Paul asks, was, was Paul crucified for you? 
No. No, he wasn't. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? No, no, we weren't. We were baptized into the name of Christ. We were purchased back from death by Christ. We belong to Christ, and so we belong to each other. Leaders are great, Paul tells us, and God has given us many. But you do not lay claim to them. Christ lays claim on you. Friends, there is still much about baptism that divides us. But let us agree on this. You were baptized into the name of Christ and into his story. This, in fact, is the antidote to all our strife. It is new energy to heal. It is the way to refocus our vision and priorities, to see again the death of Jesus. No, Paul says, not just to see it, but to let it drown our old ways of looking at the world and each other and let it rise us up into a new way of seeing. Dini was three years old when she came to her new home. Her pastor, Craig Barnes, describes her as having chocolate skin, jet black hair, and brown eyes the size of saucers. She didn't speak more than a few words of English, he writes. Her mom and dad brought her home from India after spending more than a year struggling to arrange her adoption. Dini had a number of concerning issues that came with her. She had been born with a large mole that could have been cancerous and was going to need complicated surgeries and skin grafts. It was going to take years for her to get better. Also, having spent the first three years of her life in an orphanage with little interaction, her motor skills were going to need a lot of catching up. And who knows the effects of abandonment imprinted on a little girl like that. Bedini also had two adoptive parents who were madly, wildly in love with her. And she had a congregation that had been praying for her for that entire year before they even knew her name. Well, the day came for her baptism, and Barnes got through most of the baptismal liturgy pretty well. That was until he saw Dini in her father's arms holding on to his neck, and he came to the words about being adopted into God's family, and Barnes just lost it. Well, no one in the congregation offered to take over for him, so they just waited and worshipped in silent gratitude for a while while he tried to collect himself. Finally, once he had managed to put himself back together in some order to keep going, her father poured the water of a holy covenant over the head of his new daughter. And Barnes says, we were all a mess. We were all a mess. We were all a mess. And yet somehow whole. Now you could look at that and someone from the outside might say, well, it's just sentimentality. Don't call it sentimentality. Because anyone who knows this story knows 
what it is to be adopted into this family in spite of ourselves. Lest we think that God is honored to have us in the family, the cross reminds us of just how desperate our situation was. It reminds us that once we also were lost, that once we were fugitives on the run, that once our brother's Abel's blood was on our hands, and at that time, when we were dead, Paul writes in another letter to Ephesians, God sought us, God paid our debt, God purchased us back, and now we belong body and soul and life and death to Jesus and his family. And that, in turn, is what puts our siblings back in focus, too. Christ is the glue between me and my brother and my sister. Christ is the one who aligns the seams between me and my brothers and sisters with whom I have serious disagreements. Christ is the rock-solid foundation upon which we can be knit together as children of God and living stones. And it is this focus on Christ the foundation that helps us to remember why we are here because there are still those who were lost who need to be found. There are still those orphans who need adopting. There are still those who are broken who need the lavishing love of God's grace. The cross has made room for us. So too we are here to make room for even more family members. Brothers and sisters, first things first. The church is saved and sustained in the name of Jesus. Christ's death for us and baptism into his name are the only foundation we have. And it's the only message we have for the perishing. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you have given us a banquet of beautiful images for which to understand what it is that we do here. And so we ask, O God, that as we turn our attention to this letter in Corinthians with Paul, that you would help us to hear it speaking to us as well. That with Paul, we would be reminded of the good news that while we were lost and far away, you ran and came after us. You sought us when we were strangers, that you made us alive when we were dead. We pray this in your name. Amen. As a congregation, we have ways to respond to Uh, to understand, to take home these things that we say and sing together in church in this letter in 1 Corinthians. And one of the ways that we get to do that is by inviting our third through fifth graders to come up and to go down uh, with some of our church leaders to reflect together on what they're learning. And so I want to invite them up to do that now. And also to mention that another way is that after the service, starting at 11.05, we're going to be restarting our sermon discussion which is open and available to anyone. You're welcome to join us for that for about 20 minutes. 
as we reflect together on what we're hearing uh, in 1 Corinthians and what it means for us. So our echo dismissal uh, is one of those rhythms that we're familiar with. Sometimes it's good to revise the rhythm, and so we've changed some of the language for it today, and so you guys actually have a speaking part, and I will do it with you. Sound good? So just in case you didn't know, there's those screens up there. That's how we up here cheat to know what's going on. So you can just look with me right up there. Ready? People of God, what is our prayer? Almighty and loving God, thank you for the gift of your word. That's us. Help us to believe what we have heard and live in ways that honor you above all. Amen. Nice job. Go in peace to love and serve Jesus. And friends, we have a chance to respond to God together by singing. Would you rise in body or in spirit and let's sing.
Christ gave us the ability to call God Father. That's what he gave us what he had. And so now as people who have been given that name, his good name, let's raise our voice and pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. Let's say together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And not only his name, but the promise that God's blessing, that his face, that his smile is turned toward us. And so friends, would you lift up your eyes, open your hands, and receive it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. Amen. Let's go singing.
Lord Jesus Christ.